with a book, you're essentially trying to write as many words as you can get away with, with kind of creating a world and getting lost in point of view and, and setting. And with a screenplay, you're trying to tell a story in as few words as possible. In Pete's Dragon, it's everyone belongs somewhere. In A Wrinkle in Time, it's everyone's deserving of love. In Timmy Failure, it's normals for normal people. It's okay to be different. And then in, in Peter Pan and Wendy, it's everybody grows up at, at their own pace. So that's something I've worked into to my books. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, I am so excited about today's episode. It is a treasure and it is different from the episodes that I normally have on this show. When I say that Adam Borba is one of my favoritest human beings on the planet, I mean that he is one of my favoritest human beings on the planet. If you love anything movies and books and Disney and magic. I really, really think you will enjoy today's episode. Even if you're not a hardcore Disney fan, it's really a fascinating look into creativity and production and what the entertainment industry is truly like. I had such a fun time connecting with Adam and I really think you guys will enjoy this. Adam is also an executive producer on the upcoming Peter Pan and Wendy movie, which is very, very exciting. I cannot wait to see that. Make sure to get his book, The Midnight Brigade. You will not regret it. I had a blast reading it, but especially if you have kids, it would make an awesome, awesome gift. The show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash Adam Borba. That's A-D-A-M-B-O-R-B-A. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram. Also find the announcement post there and comment there to enter to win something that I love. And I am really, really excited to hear what you guys think of today's episode just because it is so different and so unique. So this will be super fun. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it, so please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, 
they are not one ingredient, there is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MelanieAvalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text AvalonX to 877-861-8318. That's AvalonX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now. Before we change to subscriptions, you can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, 
their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code CLEANFORALL20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Adam Borba. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. Okay. I know every time I start this show, I say that I am so incredibly excited for the conversation that I'm about to have, and that is always true, but friends, I am so excited about the conversation that I'm about to have. I have been thinking about this conversation for months now, probably. Okay, so today's show is going to be a little bit different than the other episodes that I've had. It's going to be more personal. It's going to be about one of my most majorest passions in my life, not biohacking related. So for listeners who are not familiar, I actually went to film and theater school at USC in Los Angeles and lived in LA for about 10 years, currently in in Atlanta, but probably headed back to LA. But when I was at school at USC, my senior year, I did quite a few internships and the most magical, incredible internship that I did was at Whitaker Entertainment by Jim Whitaker at Disney Studios. It was just the most amazing, (laughs) magical experience. I learned so much about producing movies and the movie industry and development and all of that stuff. But at the time that I was there, a Mr. Adam Borba was the assistant. He is just honestly one of my most favorite people in the world. And I actually mean that. And of course that was a while ago and he is no longer an assistant. He is actually a creative executive at Whitaker Entertainment at Disney. And on top of that, he just released his first kid's book called The Midnight Brigade, 
which friends get this book now, get it for yourself or get it for your kids. It's so funny. It's such an adventure. I just had the best time reading it and I'm just going to like gift it to all the kids that I know. But in any case, I thought it would be really awesome and wonderful to bring Adam on the show to just have a conversation about the movie industry and Hollywood and writing books and making movies and magic and all those things. So Adam, thank you so much for being here. Melanie, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I think this is gonna be a lot of fun. I think so too. I was just thinking back to <laughs> to like my intern days and I would I would always get there so early and then I feel like I would just like unload on you all my crazy stories about college life. Like thank you for putting up with all of that back in the day. You were an incredible intern and very driven. <laughs> Such fun times. So to start things off, so many ways that we could take this conversation, but I think for a lot of people, so for me, like I've always loved movies and I've pursued it as a career and all of that. So the movie industry is a very like real, real thing to me. Like it's, you know, it's people and it's jobs and it's a business. But I think for a lot of people who have, you know, for what all they see is the actual movie in a theater, they don't see what goes into making it and the production and all of that. It can seem very disconnected and it can be hard to know what it's actually like to be in that business. So for listeners, what was your story leading to where you are today? Did you always know that you wanted to be producing films? But what led to that? What was your journey like? I want to hear the story. Yeah, I mean, I think we had very similar journeys, Melanie. Like as as a kid, I I just I loved movies. I was you know, constantly watching them. I grew up in Palm Springs, California, and I think that played a big part of it. Palm Springs has a, a, a film festival, which is a yearly thing that's kind of every January for a month. And it was just kind of a special thing to, to have in a town of, of 40,000 people. So, you know, f- for that period of time, like it would go out with my family, would see kind of two or three movies every day on the weekend and, you know, a movie every night after school. And that I think started with me when I was maybe eight-ish or so. And then I, I kind of just stuck with it. You know, growing up, like every, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, at least two out of three days, I was at the movie theater. So by the time I was in high school, it was just kind of, I know what I wanted to do. So I I, I went to USC as well. I did a, a ton of internships in college. After my freshman year, I, I worked it out. So I, I essentially had classes kind of two days a week. And then the the other three days, I, I was working at production companies or agencies or, or around Los Angeles. And then when I graduated from school, I, uh, I got a job at the mailroom at the William Morris Agency. And then I, I, I worked at William Morris in, in the motion picture department for about three and a half or four years. And then 11 and a half years ago, I, uh, I was, I was hired by Jim Whitaker and I was, uh, his first hire at, at, at his new company at Disney. And I've, uh, I've been there ever since. It's so funny. So, you know, hearing that you like worked in the mailroom, it's like a thing like, Oh, you know, working your way up through the mailroom. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's kind of exactly what you think it is where it's, you're, you're literally in the mailroom going around a building that has, you know, a hundred plus agents delivering mail and then kind of delivering, you know, inner office envelopes back and forth. But while you're doing the job, 
you're learning through osmosis. People are on the phone all day long, doors open, that kind of thing. So you're hearing bits and pieces of phone calls. And then you're also meeting everyone in the building slowly. And then kind of meanwhile, you're often sent out on deliveries to like, you know, take packages, like deliver scripts, that kind of thing. So you're getting a sense of the town and figuring out like other people around the industry as well. And then slowly as you've kind of heard those conversations, as you've met everyone in the building, then you're kind of ready to start moving into an assistant role and you're, you know, working for an agent, you're handling their schedule, you're sending out scripts to their clients and you're on every single one of their phone calls listening and just learning about the business. So it's kind of a, a great way to just kind of jump in and be at the center of a lot of aspects of the business side of movie making. I'm just having flashbacks to all of the internships that I would do. And I was just so I was just so excited, like you mentioned, like to get these glimpses of what was going on behind the scenes and feel like, oh, like this is actually happening and and I'm here and like I can maybe I can do this too. So yeah, that's absolutely amazing. Did you always want to produce specifically? Was that the end goal? Yeah, I think more often than not, yes. I think for the first year, year and a half, I was I was at William Morris. I, I knew I wanted to be a producer. I got sidetracked kind of the next year after that and was like, hey, maybe I want to be an agent. And that would have been just an awful, awful fit. Uh, luckily, William Morris and Endeavor merged. And, and unfortunately, there was a, a writer strike at, at that time as well, or kind of shortly before or after. I'm, I'm getting my, my timeline all messed up. So uh, there was a period of time where nobody was getting promoted, and that gave me time to kind of step back and rethink and kind of remember why I got into the business in the first place. So I uh, kind of recalibrated, thought about where I wanted to go while I was you know, having fun and making connections and you know, working with my friends at, at the agency. And then I, I uh, was looking for the right move to make next. And then I, I had a couple of breakfasts with Jim Whitaker, who was a, a client of Endeavor. And, and, and sorry, Endeavor is a, uh, was a um, ocean picture and, and television agency. Had he put out a call looking for an assistant? Yeah, essentially, it, like an email went out to all the assistants that just like, hey, you know, Jim Whitaker is starting a new deal. He's left Imagine Entertainment. He is looking to staff up his company. And th- that's one of the other great things about working at a talent agency is you find out about jobs before everybody else. So if someone is a client of the agency or has a good relationship with the agency, you're able to get your resume to that person first. And then also you have the experience. We're just like, listen, you, you're looking for an assistant. I've been an assistant for this many years. I've worked for these people. I can do this job. I don't think I had like realized that or remembered that. I guess when I interned for you guys, you had just recently started at Disney it was like relatively fresh, I think. Yeah, I mean, like I uh, it, again, my my timing's shady, but I uh, it, a little foggy. I would guess we had been up and running for about six months to a year by the time you started. Okay, yeah, crazy. What was the most challenging thing during all of that, like during your journey to where you are now? I think it's always figuring out the next step to make in terms of like what you want to do. You put in so much time, and you in in life. And you can only, you only have the bandwidth to do so much. So it's like, you know, if I'm, you know, leaving the mailroom and 
getting my first desk? Am I going to work for someone who is going to, you know, will I learn from this person and will I have a positive experience and will I be able to move on to a better job after this? And it, it's, it's kind of the same thing going forward. It just like, you know, even coming down to movies, like you can only make so many movies. You only have the bandwidth to develop so many things. Like, is this the thing that, you know, will get greenlit and does it have the potential to be great? Is this idea for a book something that I feel can I can write well and will, you know, resonate out in the world? It, it's kind of those kinds of choices and, and that, that's always the challenge. And, you know, my wife and I have two young kids, so I'm, I'm kind of I'm balancing a ton. So making choices of, of what to do, it's, that's the big thing, Melanie. So the type of projects that you're making now, is that what you, what has that evolution looked like? For me, like I, I grew up in the 80s. A lot of my favorite movies were, you know, movies by, you know, Steven Spielberg and Joe Dante and, and Tim Burton. And they all had this feeling that, a lot of the Disney movies have now where, you know, they're driven by heart, humor, and magic. And those are things that I run through my own writing as well. And I feel like if you connect with those stories when they're, when you're young, they can stick with you for the rest of your life. And, you know, the goal is to always work on something that's potentially some kid's favorite movie. That's the same thing I, I, I do with with my books. And, and, you know, I, I feel like if you're honest with your audience and, and, and telling straight stories and not speaking or writing or, you know, uh, talking down to your, 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 your audience in any way, in, in terms of kids, like uh, adults will connect with it as well. And, and, that, and that's the goal to kind of make and tell stories that connect with everyone. As far as the content and like talking about like talking down to kids and stuff, I think it's really hard in my opinion to make, and it's what Disney has done so well for so long, which is make a movie that, you know, the entire audience can enjoy from kids to adults because it's, you know, kid-friendly and inspiring for kids, but then also intelligent so that, you know, the older adults appreciate it as well. And then also just timeless in a way beyond time. And, and it's really, really hard to, to find those projects. And for listeners who are not familiar at all with the development world for movies, in a lot of internships, what the, the main task often is, is just reading doing coverage on scripts, which means you're just reading lots of scripts because there are a lot of scripts and basically there are a lot of ideas out there. And so I'm just so fascinated by the process of seeing something and knowing that it will make a good film that fits all that criteria and then just the journey to it. I just think there's just so much that I think most people don't even realize. I remember (laughs) I was just thinking about like the passion surrounding all of it. That was really the vibe that when I was interning for you guys, everything that you're saying right now is exactly the vibe that it was, which was, you know, finding this next big project. And I was, this just came to me. I was so happy to be there. And the tasks that I would be given, I was just so excited to do them. But like one, (laughs) I remember one time, because you guys were producing The Finest Hour and (laughs) Jim asked me to watch, what movie was it? What are the different movies that have a lot of water in them? Perfect Storm has a ton. That that was a big touch point. I think it was Perfect Storm. Yeah. And he was like, watch this movie and and tell me like how many minutes exactly there is water 
<laughs> there is water, like real water or water just inside on an indoor set or water. like there's like four categories of water <laughs> and I had to watch it and like <laughs> make notes about the actual amount of water is those type of things that I think people just don't realize everything that that goes into to everything. I was all over the place with that, but I will bring that to a question, which was maybe you can tell listeners a little bit about the projects that you have worked on. Which ones have been the most fulfilling for you with all of that that you just spoke about? I love all of them. We were in post now in our sixth movie in in the, the history of our deal. So our first one was a movie called The Odd Life of Timothy Green, which was a, a movie that Peter Hedges wrote and directed based on uh, an idea that Ahmed Zappa had and uh, Jim Ahmet and uh, a producer named Scott Sanders produced that together. I was Jim's assistant at the time, but I was also his only employee at the company. So I was, that was the one who was, you know, working with Jim and, and taking notes on calls and writing up development notes and kind of putting lists together for, you know, crew. I just learned a ton and it was kind of having to kind of jump right in and, and figure things out. And, you know, Jim's been an incredible mentor, but uh, there was a big learning curve on that one just because things were, were happening and moving quickly. And then, uh, as you mentioned, Finest Hours came next. And then after that, we did Pete's Dragon. That was kind of the first one that was an idea that I I, I generated. It was uh, it was my f- favorite movie as a four year old. I think my first or second week in the company, Jim and I started talking about it just conceptually in terms of what a reimagining would be, and it took probably three or four years after that to kind of get to a place with with Jim and at that point a couple other colleagues where we were able to kind of work through just a very rough three-page outline that was a bit of story but a lot of thematic and a lot of character work and that's kind of where that movie came from and eventually we uh we found david lowry who directed it and his uh his writing partner toby habrooks and the the two of them took that three-pager and made it entirely their own and you know wrote a, a beautiful script that's a movie I'm, I'm particularly proud of. After that, we did a, a Wrinkle in Time and, you know, we, wonderful experience. We got to work with Jennifer Lee, who now runs Disney Animation. But, you know, before that, she wrote and directed the movie Frozen. And, and so Jennifer wrote a beautiful script. We were fortunate to to have Ava DuVernay direct it. Ava's been just incredible friend and force and just inspiration. And, you know, she has taught me a, a lot about <laughs> about a lot of things, and not not just filmmaking, but kind of the world and 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 how to go about things the right way. And then after that, we uh, we did a movie called Timmy Failure, which uh, Tom McCarthy co-wrote and directed. And right now, we're working with David Lowry once again, who we did Pete's Dragon with, and we're we're doing a big live action adaptation of, of Peter Pan and Wendy. Right now we are uh, we're back in Burbank. We were up in Vancouver for for a hundred day shooting, but we are now rushing to get the movie ready to put in front of an audience for the first time for just a, a very early preview screening, which will happen this Saturday. We've got a long way to, ways to go on this movie. It's it, it's a big one, so we'll we'll essentially not be done with this movie until July, and it's you know hundreds of people working every day, very long hours to get it where it needs to be. But uh, it's been a f- just a wonderful experience and it's, it's a movie we're really excited about. Hi friends. 
Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show, like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys, and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Are you actually on set on location for all these films? Like what percent are you on location versus, you know, working from an office? Yeah, about half. So they all start in an office. And then when we go off and actually physically make the movies, either Jim and me or Jim and one of my colleagues. And when, when that happens, we're, you know, we're, we're physical onset producers. We're, you know, we, we get to set very early. We are there watching every take. We're talking to the director when we need to, and we're, we're probably solving problems as, as they pop up all day long days on making a movie or we, you know, we often work six and sometimes seven day weeks. And, you know, we're, we're working 12 to 14 hour days every day. Yeah. That's another thing I think people might not realize until they're there is just how long and how intense and how awesome, but it's definitely a lot of work and time and hours and passion and commitment that goes into producing a film, especially one to the, you know, the huge hugeness. That's not a very good word, but hugeness of something like reimagining a a Disney classic. So another question. So within the Peter Pan and Wendy and reimagining of old Disney classic world, what other Disney movies would you like to see made from like animated films, live action forms? Disney is, you know, it's an incredible studio and they have a, you know, massive development slate. So we're kind of at a place now where like anything you would think of reimagining Disney is, it has that project somewhere in the pipeline. So right now we're on the hunt for kind of things that haven't been done before, either, you know, adaptations of books, 
original stories or other classic, you know, fairy tales or classic books that, you know, have not been made by Disney, but feel like they should have been. So that that's kind of what we're, we're hunting for. Just new things that make sense with that great Disney castle at the front of the, in front of the film. I have ideas. <laughs> but um, you came out with this book, The Midnight Brigade. Was that somehow related to what you just spoke about as far as looking for films from other property? Yeah, that, that's that's absolutely right. So The Midnight Brigade, it's about three kids that are outsiders that each have trouble making friends that end up finding each other and becoming friends. And, and the kids live in Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh is a city that has three major rivers that run right through the, the heart of it. So Pittsburgh has 400, I think 46 bridges in the city, which uh, I had no idea about until I visited. My wife is from Pittsburgh, so we now go out there every year or so. I was on the hunt for, I I was looking for a movie to do about a a troll, just because I felt like it was kind of an interesting creature and it felt like something that could be fun for a kid's movie. And I was just kind of doing it at just a ton of searching of looking through old fairy tales, looking through existing middle grade books. And I just wasn't finding what I was looking for. And then on one of those trips with my wife to Pittsburgh, I uh, was staring at a bridge and I thought about how fun it would be to find a troll living under a bridge as a kid and how much fun it would be to keep that troll a secret with your friends. And it, it was it was one of those things where kind of ideas coming together all of a sudden started to take shape. So I, I started making out, uh, making an outline for what I thought was going to be another movie. And usually the outlines that my colleagues and I do are about three pages. And, you know, within a couple of days, I, I, I had dozens of pages. So I was like way past an outline for a movie. And I, uh, I, I realized very quickly, like, oh, you know what? I, I, I'm not doing an outline for a movie at all. This is very detailed scene work. I'm actually writing a book. I surprised myself with that. I, I honestly didn't intend to do so. And then I, I kind of didn't mention it to anyone just because I, uh, I didn't know if I was going to be able to finish, but I, I, I worked on it every day. And then eventually I, I had completed a draft of a novel. Whoa. So I didn't know that. So you wrote it first, like you wrote the novel draft. I, I wrote the novel. I didn't tell anyone. You tell your wife? No, I, I actually, uh, so my my wife is coincidentally a, a literary agent. She represents authors and, and sells books to publishers. My, my wife is not my agent. Uh, you know, one night I, I came home and said like, hey, if, uh, if I wrote something, would you read it? And she's like, oh, sure, of course. So I, I walked out to my car and I brought the manuscript I, I had written and, and gave it to her. And she's like, like uh, she was very surprised and shocked to read it that night and that's how it happened. Wow. Okay, this is incredible. So, I'm like very goal oriented and every quote big project I've done, I've had the end goal of like manifesting it. So like when I originally self-published my book, I knew all along I was going to self-publish it and then when I traditionally published it, that was all like a path, but just hearing you talk about this, were you on the fence about it? Like, were you kind of just going to write it and see what happened? Or did you know, no, yes, I want to turn it into a book? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think early on it was just like it was it was such a flyer for me because I always felt like you know worst case the nothing happens with the book it it doesn't sell I could still turn it back into a movie and you know we're we're you know s- slowly working on developing it into a film as well but it, it was kind of a hey nothing to lose but also I you know I I was very driven in, in terms of getting it done I I, I don't think you can sit down and write a book and then just kind of stumble into it at at some point you have to really like figure out that drive and start setting goals for yourself like i'm gonna write x amount of words like every day and 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 that's how you you get it done just because i i think it's one of those things where like if you start writing and then kind of lose the thread of it and set it aside it's hard to pick it back up and and get back into it so it it really is about kind of setting goals and 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 pushing forward. And, and that's, that applies to a lot of things in life. I'm just so fascinated by everybody's individual creative process. So did you come up with the entire plot and the characters and like really intense outline and you filled it in or was it more like it came to you as you were writing it chronologically? What was that process like? For the Midnight Brigade both, I essentially had two documents open on my computer one of them had the manuscript and one of them was the outline and I outlined as I went and it was loose and it was just like sometimes I would write something one day and then realize like oh like there's an opportunity for a joke to call back to I should make a note that you know a a few bullet points later down this outline I should you know make a joke about flossing that kind of thing or like stumble into it like a set piece for a climax I I didn't quite know where I was going but like a, a lot of times like the outline was like very vague where it was like it would it would literally say, I would literally write things like, you know, something bad happens. And then the next beat was something happens that makes that worse. And it, it would kind of work that way to come into shape. And I, I felt like that was a good way to come up with a storyline that I, I, I think is, I like to think unpredictable, but it was also a lot of work in terms of getting into shape. I mean, I probably did... I'm going to say 10 complete drafts of of that manuscript before it went out into the world and was probably four or five before it was ready to go to publishers even. So it was was a lot of work by not having that that firm outline to start. On all all of our movies, and I am almost done with my, my next book, those that have much more concrete outlines to to start usually you know that I'm, I'm a, a a strong believer in the idea of a of getting kind of a, a three page outline in place and that should be enough for kind of basic plot points for a movie or loose enough plot points for a book and then the outline grows from there so you know by the time you you if, if you're gonna uh, this is really getting into the weeds, Melanie, but like, but it, I love the weeds. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. By the time you're ready to kind of like, if we're pitching a movie to a studio, that is usually like a 10 to 12 page document by the time it, it's, it's ready to go in. And if you're, if you have kind of 10 to 12 pages of written prose, that is kind of enough time to go beat for beat for what will be a 100 to 110 page screenplay. 
and then for when I'm writing books, what I start off with, that, you know, it, it, that three-page outline just continues to grow as kind of more details and subplots and characters emerge in the writing. So by the time I'm done with the book, that three-page outline, and I think on both books, ended up being 20 pages. So it just kind of grows as, as, as the project grows. Well, I don't want to give anything away for listeners, but did you come up at the beginning with the the revelation at the end early? No. So I, I think there's there's kind of two big reveals towards the end of the Midnight Brigade. And one of them is based on fact, and it was a, a story that a friend had told me probably 10 years before I wrote the book that I had forgotten all about that I kind of stumbled into when I had written myself into a wall. It was just like, oh, of course, this is this is kind of what I needed. And then the other reveal was, was just kind of something I made up kind of on the spot when I had again, written myself into a corner. And it uh, both of those things ended up being the solutions. And those were two of the things that essentially stayed the same through those 10 drafts that followed. That's so cool. The one based on fact was just so mind-blowing to me. I was like, what? It, it's crazy. <laughs> uh-huh. I was like, how have I not heard about this <laughs> before? So yeah, that was that was fabulous. Were there any super major changes? Like actually, I guess stepping back, I'm assuming you probably met your agent through your wife or how did you find your literary agent? And were there any major changes with the project with like your editor and your publisher and all of that? I ended up signing with with WME, which is the agency my my wife works for. But I did before I did that, I I, I didn't want to just sign with an agent because it's the same company my wife works at. Publishing is is kind of like the one of the few creative businesses where you can send out a, a query letter to an agent and they will actually read that letter and respond to you as opposed to in the, in the feature and television business where they don't take unsolicited material. You kind of have to find your, your representation first. So it's kind of a chicken the egg thing and it, it, you really kind of have to hustle, uh, meet people, enter contests, which is, I think, much more easy. It's an easier way to get into now than it used to be with you know, kind of websites like The Blacklist. Like you can upload your screenplay and, and people will read it. And I feel like if you write something good, people will find you. And that process has gotten shorter. So anyway, back on the, the publishing side. So I, I sent out query letters to a, a bunch of agents. I spent a long time working on that letter just because I spent a long time working on that book. And I, I the responses were great where I, I had a, a, a handful of agents circle back and, and want to read, uh, offered to read my book. And a lot of them came back with notes and I addressed notes. And then ultimately I, I was in a position where I, I had a choice and I, I realized I was actually connecting creatively best with uh, with my the agents I, I signed with a WME. So I, I, I did two drafts with them before we went out with the book. They helped me a, a, a ton. I, I, when they first read the manuscript, so th- there's three kids and each of the kids have parents that are a, a big part of the story as well. 
that first draft or, or that the draft that they read, the, the parents were a much bigger part where it, it was kind of 50% kids point of view, 50% parents. And we, it, I, I pulled kind of way back and now it's probably, I, I don't even know. It was, it, it's, a, it's now a, a fraction. And, and that was a note that I, I got from my agents. And then also, while there were three kids in the book that they, in the manuscript they initially read, it was really focused on just one of them. And they encouraged me to make it more of a collective, move the point of view around. And, and that was kind of creative feedback that made the book better. And it was, you know, it's a, it's a big part of finding the right agent is, is making sure you're dealing with someone who sees eye to eye with you creatively and not only can, you know, sell your material well, but help you make your material better. It's so interesting hearing you point that out about the query letter. So for listeners, when I traditionally published my book, I pitched it to an agent and I actually signed with like my dream agent. She's one of the top nonfiction diet agents in the country. But the query letter is so hard because basically you have, you know, you have your entire work, which is very lengthy. And then you have to, in like a few paragraphs, <laughs> explain really quick, you know, everything quickly and succinctly and, you know, why you need to be signed. And I, I mean, I probably spent like, two months just writing my one email. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's nerve wracking. <laughs> it's, it's awful. And then I remember my agent, she called me and she said she gets 10,000 unsolicited submissions every year. And she answers two of them and she wanted to sign me. And I was like, Oh my gosh. But it's so cool. That idea that, you know, and I guess it really is the one of the only industries where that is still a pathway there, you know, where you can like submit yourself and, have them actually read it. It's very old school in that regard. In the spirit of book writing, I guess. No, totally. And just like those letters are so important because it's like you basically, like, you know, writing a book takes a long time, but also reading a book takes a long time. And you're basically telling someone that like, hey, you need to find the time to stop what you're doing with everything else in your life and read my book just because I think it would be a good use of your time. But it's it's it, you're asking someone to step away from everything else they're doing. It's a tricky, important letter and spend the time on it. What have you learned from that collaborative creative process? So like for people who, you know, have things they want to make creatively when you do ultimately end up in a team to make it, so be it movies or books, do you ever have moments where you wanted one thing creatively and other people want different things? And how do you know what to go with and what you should hold on to and what you should let go? Rarely in either field am I in a position where I feel so strongly and everyone is against me that I'm going to put my foot down and say, like, we have to do it this way. And I think I get this from being a producer where, you know, it's, it's important that everyone is heard. And if you're getting a note on something that you don't agree with, it's important to take the time and figure out why that note's coming. What's the note behind the note? Someone is feeling like something isn't right. Sometimes there is a specific suggestion that comes from that person that you may not agree with. But often there's a common ground where just like, 
you know, you're you're telling you're you're suggesting like, you know, this character should do X, but you know, like this character would never do that. But like, why do you, why did you feel like this character needed to do X? And then it's, you know, perhaps the solution is Y. But that sounded like a, a math. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm doing algebra uh, here, Melanie, but I, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of important to do the work to get on the same page with people, like um, being creative in a vacuum some people can do it, but I, I, I think most people are better off if they are collaborating, if they have a sounding board, if you're, you know, working with someone else to get to the, the best version of idea. And, and you don't have to take everyone's ideas verbatim, but, you know, you should be open to feedback and you, you should be open to criticism and you should be open to the idea that there are better ideas out there. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off. And that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. I'm so glad you brought up that whole math concept idea because I, I've thought about this a lot. So like, what do you think happens when, and this is more of a, a vague question, but, you know, say there's a movie with a major budget, you know, major production companies behind it, lots invested, and then it's just a complete flop. I'm always curious buy that. It's like, it has to go. I mean, so many people had to sign off on it and approve it and see it. And you think there would be like a math formula by now. So what do you think happens? What is the math formula gone wrong with box office flops? Yeah. I mean, it just like, there's like the old saying that nobody knows anything, but it's also one of those things like you got to keep in mind that just like, even with bad movies or movies that didn't perform, it wasn't out of laziness. Like I promise you hundreds and hundreds of people spent hours and hours and days and weeks and months and years of their life putting everything into the movie. But, you know, unfortunately movies, you know, sometimes there's bad luck. There's, you know, there's, there have been amazing four-star terrific movies that just didn't perform at the box office. And that could have been just the bad weekend wasn't presented in the right way, any number of things. And those things are just essentially out of most people's control. And then in terms of just uh, like a bad movie, just like there's just so many things that can go wrong where you, 
you know, there are countless decisions and certain decisions are like, oh, it's fine if you, you go left instead of right. But other things are just like, well, you went left early. Like there's no way to get like back on the road. And, you know, those, those things are unfortunately baked in. And then sometimes you're, you're, you know, very close to something and you love it and you love it because it's exactly what you wanted it to be. And sometimes it's unfortunately just not as good as, uh, <laughs> as you would have hoped. It's really, really, really interesting. It's like you almost just, you think it would be more predictable, but it's just not going back to like, no, nobody knows anything. Or on the flip side, you know, a movie might come out that nobody's anticipating to take off and then, you know, it gains some massive cult following or is received really well. So it's always really interesting. And I'm glad you pointed that out about until people have seen the movie industry and, and what all is involved it's really easy to like see a movie at the box office and say, you know, that's a flop and just completely disregard it. But like you mentioned, it's, you know, thousands of people, thousands of hours, so much time, so much energy. So I just, I really think it all should be um, definitely appreciated for people who have these dreams of pursuits, you know, maybe creative ones, particularly, do you think everybody should just follow their dreams in every way it goes? Or do we need to be more, I don't know, does there need to be like a really specific plan? Like, like what is your advice to people when they're wanting to get into this industry or, or do similar things like you're doing? I mean, I, I think it's find out what you're, what you're great at that you love and then figure out the time to, to pursue that. But it's also, you should have a backup plan you know, just a lot of it is, 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 is time management. So if you want to write, you want to direct, you want to paint, you know, just figuring out the, the time in the day, the time in the, the weekends to, to kind of work in those creative endeavors while you're also doing your day job and, and, and putting food on the table. If you're wildly passionate about something and, and have the ability to, to do it, I mean, just, you don't want to hate yourself by not giving yourself the, the, the shot. So it's it kind of find ways to put yourself in a position to, to give yourself the best chance. If it means you have to kind of put money away to, to move out to, to Hollywood to try to act, take that shot. But, you know, just don't move out here with, with, with kind of no plan in place. And also take advantage of your time feel like I, 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 <laughs> I wish I had like the perfect response to, to give, but it, it's, it's hard and you, you, you just kind of have to hustle. Just got to keep going, <laughs> keep climbing. So the next book that you're working on, is it related? Is it like a series now or is it something completely different? Yeah, it's a, it's a standalone. It's a, a, a book about another kid from Pittsburgh, but it's a, it's a completely, you know, different kid. And it's a, a kid who, who, leaves Pittsburgh, he essentially gets sent away. You know, like the Midnight Brigade, there's heart, humor, and magic that happens along the way. Is it the same world? In theory, like if this doesn't happen in the book, but like uh, this kid could pick up a newspaper in his world and read about these other kids who found a troll in Pittsburgh. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And you are currently developing the Midnight Brigade into a film? Slowly, yeah. We're kind of slipping it out to high-level writers and directors kind of one at a time, and those reads take time. Would you ever want to direct or write or do anything else like that, or is producing your your main cup of tea? 
I think producing is my, my main cup of tea. Like when I uh, when I was in college and, and just after, and, and certainly in high school, I, I thought I was going to be a screenwriter and, and write movies. And I just realized while I'm, I, I think I'm strong at, at developing movies, I think there are people who are better at writing scripts than I am. I think there's a, there are a number of people who can do, you know, anything they want. Like they can write a screenplay and they can also write a book. But I think more often than not, those are different skill sets. And, and it, to me, they're actually opposites where with a book, you're essentially trying to write as many words as you can get away with and kind of without, you know, bogging the, the reader down with kind of creating a world and getting lost in point of view and, and setting. And, and with a screenplay, you're trying to tell a story in as few words as possible. That's at least kind of my point of view on, on how those, those different. And then there's also, you know, <laughs> number of other things, Melanie. That's so interesting. Like both a screenplay and a novel or a book, they're both creating the experience of a story. But like you said, it, it's a completely different format as far as just when it comes to the actual words. I hadn't thought about that before. That's crazy. There's a lot of overlap in terms of the way I go about developing movies and the way I go about writing books. I mean, like theme is, uh, I think, an important part of storytelling. And I learned it by developing films. And it's kind of what is the universal message that your story is trying to tell. And I I came to that very early in my career at developing films. So it's, you know, and and rarely does anyone in our, in, in the movies we do, come out straight and, and say the, the theme of the film, but it, it's always something we, we, we discuss with the director and writer early on and kind of figure out what we're trying to say. So, it, you know, for instance, in, in Pete's Dragon, it's everyone belongs somewhere. In A Wrinkle in Time, it's everyone's de- deserving of love. In Timmy Failure, it's normals for normal people. It's okay to be different. And then in, in Peter Pan and Wendy, it's everybody grows up at, at their own pace. So that's something I, 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 I've worked into to my books as well, is just figure out what that theme is as early as possible and then work the narrative to address that so each scene builds on it. And another thing is, is, is kind of story structure. I, uh, I write all of my first acts of my books in, in three-act structure, which I, I take out of the, the film world. They grow from there. And as additional subplots are added, but I, I feel like if I'm, I'm if I'm starting from a place of three act structure and it and it works, then then the book will be structurally sound as as it as as the as the story grows. And then the one other thing I I, I take from de- developing movies is 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 cut out the boring stuff. You want to tell your story as efficiently as possible. You know, if there's a way to get from A to Z without hitting every letter <laughs> along the way, and those other points don't matter, I, I kind of cut ahead. Ideally, everything in the book kind of works as an engaging and is fun to read aloud, as opposed to getting lost. You know, describing the side of a building. That's, uh, that's where I'm shaking out. Your son is three, and your daughter is one now. Yeah, yeah. Are they? Um watching any of your movies and what movies do you like want them to watch 
Why do you set them in front of the TV and like have to watch this? No, I mean like my my, my kids love Disney Plus, so uh, <laughs> they've watched everything that's it's that's on there. I, I think at this point, which is impressive, they've seen and I think appreciated and liked the movies I've been involved with. I don't know to what what degree they're they're fully grasping all of the stories, but uh, they, they at least appreciate it. And it's you know it's fun to just sit and and watch something you you worked on with uh with someone you love. Did you base any of the characters off of any character traits of like your family or people that you know? Off of me, I think would be the answer. I, I think uh all three of the kids in in the Midnight Brigade are, are a little bit me. So there's there's a, a boy named Carl Chesterfield who is a, an introvert and you know he's got a, a running monologue in his head but he's he's always afraid of saying the wrong thing so he doesn't say anything at all and i feel like that was me as a kid there is a boy named Teddy who is a bit of a dreamer. That's me now and forever. And then there is a, a girl named B, and she's the the daughter of a, a famous restaurant critic. And she's very opinionated and, and judgmental, and and occasionally too much so. And she takes kind of too much pride in her opinions. And uh, I'll admit that's that's me as well. And then there's a there's a a, a, a troll named Frank who's uh, who's grumpy, but he's, his heart's in the right place. And I, I feel like that's me more often than not these days. I love Carl's dad in particular. I think he's so funny. One of the things that's really funny is he opens for listeners a a food truck and decides that the food needs to basically be. Like it'll be special because it's average food. Like he he aims to have average food for the average person. Average food for the average person, and he uh, he 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 buys a food truck with kind of no food experience, and the only place he can fit his food truck is is under a bridge. So so here we are, goals. <laughs> it's so funny. So actually, going to your daily habits and your life. And because a lot of people who listen to the show in general are looking for ways to really optimize their performance and just, you know, really enhance what they're doing from day to day and stress and life and sleep and food and all that. So how do you handle all of that? Well, first of all, I guess, you know, as a producer, what is your schedule like, your daily life like, and how do you deal with if it becomes stressful or intense or time management? How do you keep doing what you're doing? Time management's the thing. So when I'm writing, I wake up at five and write from five to seven. And then the rest of the day, I am working on movie stuff. Occasionally, there might be some sort of break in my schedule where, you know, I have a five minute window or a 10 minute window and I've returned all my phone calls and responded to all my emails. That was a big realization I had is, is, you know, when you're doing kind of the extracurricular creative things, don't wait for the perfect conditions. Like don't wait for the time where just like, Oh, I'm going to go off and, you know, write in a hotel room for like two, two days. Or, you know, I'm going to like close my door and have like four hours where it's just going to be me and my computer. Just like take advantage of those little times. And then also I pulled way back on, on TV. I uh, <laughs> used to probably watch two or three hours of TV a night. That's, you know, I, I still watch TV, but now I, I you know, I, I only 
I, I, I don't kind of surf. I, I, uh, I, I do agenda driven television where like, I know the show is great. It's my favorite. I'm going to make time to watch it. And then kind of the rest of the time, my, uh, my, my son, Charlie is three. He goes to preschool. I, I drop him off every morning at nine. And so by nine 30, I'm in the office and then, you know, I, I, and start getting emails before seven every day. So I kind of respond to those as they come through. And then I'm in the office working until seven o'clock each night. I, uh, I go home. I put the kids to bed. I hang out with my wife. And then usually I am responding to emails again, doing some kind of last minute phone calls, and then just doing a ton of reading for work. Um, just because I get bombarded with great screenplays all day and I, I have to make the time to read them. What has been your experience having a family with both of you guys working, like two working parents? We found a great system. It's my, my wife has very similar hours to me. She has way more emails than I do. And then she also has, I would say, more reading than I do as well. So it's kind of we understand stand each other's work needs and, and, and kind of have each other's backs. If my wife has a client dinner and you know I, it, one of us needs to get home early to re- relieve the nanny, I will kind of drop things in and, and go home. And it, it's kind of just communicating and understanding what we both need to do to do our jobs and, and be good parents. And I will say, just speaking to what you're talking about with the emails, Adam is excellent at answering emails. <laughs> I've, I've always been in awe of your email answering ability from day one. It's very impressive. Uh, thank you. I mean, I, I feel like if someone takes the time to, to drop you an email and, it, and it's a personal thing and a real thing that they spent time on, you know, as long as the person like you know, is coming in with like good intentions and serious, like you, you owe them a response. If someone throws in a call to your office, you, you call them back. I feel like we, we, we kind of owe people that kind of decency and you, you never know where, where, where things are going to come from, you know, and just someone coming up, you know, you might help them out. And then years later they could come to you with the best idea for a movie you've ever heard, or, you know, introduce you to your new favorite director or actor. And, and you just never know. Hi, friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, 
Basically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it. And it lasts for 14 hours. And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, PS, they're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. I'm the exact same way as far as like answering people. And um, although it's becoming a problem now with my audience growing and everything, I still feel like I need to answer every single person. So I'm trying to find like a healthy relationship where I can do that still. It's a characteristic. Like I said, it's something I picked up from you ever since I've known you, which has been a long time now. Just that part of you, which is just, you see other people and you're kind and you're receptive and you're just a really 
How do I start crying? You're a really wonderful human being. No, oh, thanks, Melanie. I try. You, you are. I'm dying to know, and I don't even know if you are familiar with all the different things that would qualify as such that I'm about to say, but do you do any of the biohacking things? Do you want me to give examples of what those would be? I feel like I've done, is intermittent fasting biohacking? Yeah. Do you do intermittent fasting? Like I, I've done it on my own without knowing it's a thing. And I've probably done it for eight years now, at least where just like, I'm probably not as disciplined as, as, as most of, of your, your listeners. You know, I, I do two meals a day and I, I know that's like, I, I feel like there's probably folks that are, uh, <laughs> doing much, much more than that. But I, I feel like that was hard for me to make the switch. And now that I've done it, like the idea of like, you know, eating three times a day, just like, I don't feel so good. Like when I do that, like, even if I'm having like three small meals, I've kind of recalibrated how I go about eating. Are those two meals later or are they earlier? So you're about to tell me I'm doing this incorrectly. No, I'm not. They are later in the day. So I, uh, I, I usually eat for the first time at lunch around kind of one or two. And then I have dinner when I come home and I, I come home very late. It's usually eight or eight 30 or so. I'm about to put all of your concerns about IF to rest. I would have been, oh, well, maybe that's quote incorrect. I thought you were going to say that you eat breakfast and then eat dinner. So like, because that would create an issue because then you would actually never have an extended fasting period, if that makes sense. But no, no, what you're doing is- So I'm doing it correctly? Yeah. I did it. Yes. <laughs> Stamp of approval. Um, yeah. I eat super late like super late every night. So I was doing IF back when I was interning for you. And I don't know if you remember, but I would never go to lunch. I would just like work more. I, I just assumed you were very driven and you are. I was doing intermittent fasting and working. Some of the, the biohacking things that might be super awesome for you would be things like blue light blocking glasses. Are you familiar? My wife uses them. Oh, she does? Yeah. I don't get headaches. Is that... Like a uh, like the reason is that the reason? Tell me more. Educate me. Okay, so that is a reason. It is not the reason. There are reasons, but I was thinking of it. The main reason I do it is for regulating your sleep cycle. And if you're staying up late, which it sounds like you often are, and which I am, wearing those at night it helps keep your circadian rhythm to not get messed up because you're staying up late. So like when you're keeping on any light that has blue wavelength at night, right before you're about to go to bed, that's telling your brain basically that you still have quite a few hours before you're going to go to bed. So if you start wearing them at night, like about three hours before you go to bed, then you can stay up later. You'll still have a normal melatonin production for when you go to bed. Melanie, I'm, I'm one of those terrible people that has no trouble sleeping. I stay up late, but like when I'm ready to go to bed, I, I get like painfully tired, like when I'm ready to go. So I, I basically pass out and it's either an alarm or my three-year-old that wakes me up in the morning. How does your wife sleep? Awful. She is uh, the worst sleeper I've ever met. She has like this whole other life without me where just like she watches like entire seasons of of shows that I've I've not heard of. I'm usually in bed around 11 or 12 and she's usually asleep around two or three and then sleeps horribly through the night. Okay. So she's like me. <laughs> oh, but she already has the blue light blocking glasses. Yeah. That would be something for her. Do either of you sleep hot or cold? Well, you obviously sleep fine. 
either way. Yeah, I sleep in any condition. So now now I'm helping your wife. (laughs) Does she sleep hot or cold? I don't know. She's been using a bunch of weighted blankets recently, and I think that's helpful, but I don't know if that's related to hot or cold. Yeah. So the weighted blanket is, it activates your um, parasympathetic nervous system. The science they say is because it's kind of like you're being held. So it's telling your body that you're, that you're safe. The the heating and cooling thing is I use a, a mattress. It's called the Uller, but there's different brands, but it uses water and it can be any temperature you want it to be. So if you're hot at night, it can keep you cold. Or if you get cold at night, it can keep you warm. It's a game changer for me. So I'm in. You're, oh, you said you're in. <laughs> oh, and and they have a version for like two people. So like one side can be hot or cold, and the other side can be hot or cold. So you can make it like what you want it to be for each person. So so yeah, I I've got all the night stuff, and then I also use like red light therapy. So I my entire apartment at night is lit by red light. Educate me on this. So it's the type of light in the rising and setting sun, and it's got no blue light, obviously. So if you use it as a lighting source, it's very calming, and it can like wake you up in the morning and help you wind down at night. And then near-infrared light is a type of light that's very therapeutic and healing. And the devices that have red light usually have near-infrared as well. You can choose which wavelength. But those actually help with muscle recovery and tension and pain, and you can actually like treat yourself with it. And the red light will actually enhance your skin and all of that. So I have a lot of red light devices. and But my apartment at night is like, it looks like the red light district, which is intense. Yeah, I'm all about the biohacking things. But sounds like you're- I'm doing it. You're doing it. You're doing it. When did you start, you said? I feel like at least eight years ago. Okay, so been quite a while. Well, it helps me with being on set. That was one of the main reasons I really liked it was not having to deal with all that set food 24-7 because there's a lot of food. It's hard. Yeah, there's a lot of food and it, it's a lot of great food. <laughs> I know. It's very elaborate. What do you think is one of the biggest surprising things about what you do in the film industry or misconceptions or just like mind blown, like things people wouldn't know unless they were in the industry? I think there's kind of two general misconceptions that I I (laughs) give for people. Like, I feel like people are always surprised by how hard people in the film industry work. Cause I, I think they're, they have it that we tend to be lazy over here. I really don't think that's the case. Like, um, (laughs) kind of working around the clock. And, uh, I, I, I don't think that's remotely uncommon. We're just like, you know, folks are at the office until seven, eight, nine o'clock at night, pretty regularly. And the folks who aren't are home and, and they're working and uh, it starts right up again the next morning. The old, uh, you know, Hollywood's about who you know. I also don't think that's true because it, it, it's really not, not about like who you know. It's like it's about who knows that you're good. And I, I, I think that's, that, that's the other thing I'd, I'd like to clear up. I am so glad that you talked about that. And because when I first moved to LA, I, I knew nobody. I mean, zero. <laughs> and I don't know. I do think it is more about like who you are and what you can do. And then and then you will know people. No, totally. Just like you write something amazing or you are you have incredible people skills or story sense. People are going to want to work with you. People are going to want to introduce you to other people. You're going to get opportunities if you kind of get out of here and hustle. But if you're 
you know, one of those people that just like thinks like, oh, I'm going to get by on just being a kind of social butterfly and not get the work in. Then it'll be like, oh yeah, I know that guy. Like he's super lazy or just like that guy does have no idea what he's doing. He's very nice though, like that kind of thing. But like those people, I don't think succeed. What have you seen with the film industry and the evolution of social media? And what do you think is the future of that? Does it have a huge effect on how movies are made now and like what's produced and what's done and even marketing and all of that? There's always some interesting things that come up every year in terms of social media marketing, like just augmented reality, tie-ins, that kind of stuff. I don't know how much like the like quote unquote new stuff is moving the needle just yet. But it's, I think they're going to, it's great that they're going to keep trying that stuff and eventually things hit. And sometimes those things are one-offs and sometimes they'll become the norm. So one of the things I've always been really surprised by that it hasn't happened more yet is an evolution of the film format. Despite the advances in technology and the actual what we can film and, and how the movies look, like there hasn't really been an evolution stepping outside of the movies, like making them, I don't know, I always thought that there would be more some sort of like interactive component or I don't know, like it's pretty much still the same that it's always been like, it's a movie, it's an experience, you watch it, but there's not much of a like a interactive. I guess I thought it would have happened more with social media and I'm being really vague. I feel like there's something that's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Someone's got to figure it out. I mean, like it's, you know, there is the whole choose your own adventure aspect of thing. And just like going back to like, like John Waters took a shot with smell vision the way we tell stories, like it, it goes back, you know, longer than just the movie business. It just like, we're used to story structure going back to plays and we are used to story structure going back like literally thousands of years. Like if you read poetics, which is Aristotle's uh, kind of a, approach and rules to storytelling, there's really nothing in that book that is surprising and doesn't hold true today. So, you know, things are tried and true and, and, and tested for a reason. And just like, I, again, I'll go back to kind of three-act structure there's a reason those things work. And, you know, it, it, the more you do to make things interactive, the more you are breaking from those structures that you know work. That said, like I'm sure someone at some point and hopefully soon is going to do something incredible in the VR space. There are just kind of so many possibilities with technology that exists these days. But I don't know if the artists that are going to lead the way forward with those types of storytelling are going to come from like the movie business or, or a traditional storytelling space. It, they might be kind of technology driven and happen to be great storytellers as well. So I'm not really sure, but uh, like you, I'm, I'm interested. I just, I don't know if and when, how quickly those things are going to come. So rather than it being like an evolution of the same species, it's like kind of like a, a new species, like a another type of media. That's my gut. Like I, I feel like there's going to be, you know, some brilliant programmers that are going to come up with, you know, some new software or hardware that'll allow us to tell stories in a different way. 
how did the pandemic affect everything for you guys? So we were we were prepping Peter Pan and Wendy, and we were, uh, I think, seven or eight weeks out from starting to shoot when everything hit. And I was up in Vancouver, so we came home. And at that point, it was like, hey, we're going to shut down for four weeks, and we'll be right back up, uh, little did we know. So we came back around about a year later. Uh, and at that point, we had kind of testing protocols in place and just you know an approach to keep people safe and, and socially distanced while still making the movie. So, you know, it was, it was rough, like having to wear a mask kind of 14 to 16 hours a day and then, you know, be socially distanced from people doing our rest. I always stand kind of six feet away when movie baking is, you know, something usually you're, you're, you know, in a tight circle, like, you know, like inches away from people's face making his decisions quickly. So that's, you know, something to be kind of conscious of to move forward. And it was just like a, a little bit less of, of a social experience than, than movie making typically is where, you know, you, you're having the conversations with people that you need to have to make the movie as opposed to, you know, make a connection. One of the things that's been great for movie making and I is in the development process is 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 Zoom uh, just coming into our lives. It's you could get you can just slide more meetings in the day if you're a, a writer or a producer. You don't have to like drive all the way across town. You can just hop on a Zoom. I I do personally miss getting in a room with people. You know, our our, our conference room at, at the office. It's you know surrounded by big whiteboards. And one of my favorite parts of the development process is to be able to you know sit in a room around a table with my colleagues and a writer or writers and crack a story together and, and talk through problems. And you know, there's a way to do that virtually, but I feel like being in a room and being able to like you know switch off on who's writing on the right whiteboard and it is, you know, it, it, at times a, a much more efficient way of, of collaborating. I mean, the film industry as a whole is such a humanistic endeavor. Like there is something to that with in collaboration and being in person with somebody and connecting and for the ultimate product that you're creating. And I do wonder just in general with all industries, like how things will look on the flip side, like especially with people realizing more and more, oh, we can be more efficient with Zoom meetings and, you know, what long-term effects that will have on everything. What are you most excited about for the future of everything? Like, where do you see yourself being in like 10 years? Like, honestly, I am so happy with where I am in life right now. I, uh, I have an amazing family. I love working at Whitaker Entertainment and I, I love being able to make the time to write on the side as well. So in 10 years, if I'm still doing what I'm doing, I'm going to be a pretty happy person. If you were able to, and you could just say yes, would you want to live forever? Are there side effects? No. Yeah, I'll do it. Okay. I thought you were going to say yes. I. <laughs> it's funny. My question to that was always yes. And I thought everybody's answer would be yes. But most people I ask do not say yes. Yeah, I think they assume they're getting tired, but like if there's no side effects, I mean, just like there's so many like places I'd love to visit. So much stuff to do. Yeah, and just like so many things I want to read and watch and like experiences I want to have. And, you know, even if you live forever, you won't have the time to do it all just because there's more things every day. 
you know, if you if you live forever, you'll you'll at least have a shot. That's the way I feel. Okay, I called it. The majority of my audience is probably not in the, you know, screenwriting industry or, you know, movie industry or anything, but for those who do, can they cuz we were talking earlier about like getting your work in front of people, like can they just blind submit places? Like does Whitaker Entertainment take blind submissions or how does that work? Yeah, m- most places don't, but so it's about finding the places that do. You know, there's a lot of small management companies around town that do, and that's their business. That's how they discover writers. So, again, it's 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 the query letter we, we talked about. Like in one page, how can you sell yourself and your project in such a way that that pr- the person reading the email has to say, "Oh man, I have to take two hours out of my weekend to read this person's screenplay." So it, it's spending the time to do that. Technically, we don't take unsolicited material. That said, if someone sends me the greatest email in the world and they're just like, oh man, like uh, I will send you a release form that uh, our, our lawyers put together that will allow me to accept uh, your material and, and, and kind of review it. So it, it, it's just about kind of hustling, finding those places. And there are, you know, it, it, Get on Google. And then again, there's a lot of legitimate contests out there, like the blacklist. There are a handful at this point where if you write something great, those places will recognize that and folks in the industry will will find your script. Technically, you don't even need to be in Los Angeles and less so now with Zoom. And then for the Midnight Brigade, for people who would like to get it, oh, I forgot, we're going to do a signed book giveaway. But before I get to that, what is the perfect age range? Or like, yeah, what ages of kids do you recommend it for? And where can listeners check it out? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think the, the sweet spot is is 6 to 12 in terms of reading on their own or being read to. And 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 being read to was, was the goal here. I, uh, one of my favorite memories is or some of my favorite memories as a kid was when my mom or dad read to, to my brothers and me. So I, I, I kind of spent a, a lot of time focused on, on working to make sure I was, I was telling a story that was fun and funny and emotional that would work for folks of all ages. So if, if mom or dad is reading the book, they'll, they'll enjoy it as well. And it's, it's also a, a very easy and fun book, at least in my opinion, to, to read out loud. And, and that was the goal, to, to make sure that the whole family enjoys. It's in bookstores and, and online. Well, you definitely accomplished that goal. I was thinking that so much when I was reading it. I was like, this is the perfect book for if you're a parent with a kid in that age range because it's so fun and so funny. Like I had the best time reading it and that was just me reading to myself. So so if I was um, had a kid, that it would be um, absolutely perfect. So job well done there. And And um, for listeners, I'm so excited. We are going to do a signed book giveaway. So you can go to my Instagram. You can find the announcement post about this episode. There'll be details on the post, but basically comment something you learned or something that resonated with you or just any thoughts about our conversation to enter to win a signed copy. So thank you so much for that. Well, this has been absolutely amazing. I'm just so excited to catch up with you after all these years. Is there anything that you would like to share with my audience at large about anything that we did not touch on? No, I'm just going to I'm going to do a deep dive into biohacking and figure out what else can work for me, but I uh, <laughs> Oh, there's so many things. <laughs> cryotherapy? Do you do cryotherapy? Not yet. Oh. 
I go every day. Wait, sincerely? Mm-hmm. I went today. Okay, I'm going to Google this, and then I will. Uh, I want to come back to you. Like negative 270 degrees for three minutes. And you're in LA, so there's, there's probably a place right next door to you. I've seen the billboards. Now I know what this is. Wait, you go every day? Yes. Oh, it's so great. I'm assuming this is a membership situation. Yeah. You work your way up. Oh, and I'll just let you know, because if you're actually going to look into this, I want to make sure you, you do it right. Is it painful? No, mm, no. So like when I first started doing it, you work your way up. So you start at like negative 100 and I don't know, 80 degrees and you work your way up to like negative 200, like mid 200s. But the first few times you do it, it, it is kind of painful because your, your nerves and your skin are like not used to that. And so they actually, I think they get confused. It's kind of like when you put your hands in like hot and cold water and you like can't tell what temperature it is. Like you kind of get like pain signals, but you really quickly adapt and you work your way up. And now I do it every single day and it's great. And you, and make sure you go to one that is a full, full immersive because some of them, your head sticks out. That's how I was picturing it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do that one. Do the one where you're actually like in it. Is, is your head sticking out? Like it just like, does that make it so you're, what's the issue? Is it like your, your, your top part is, is too warm. So everything else is freezing and it's way easier if your head's sticking out of it. It's like, kind of like, think about the difference between being in a freezing, you know, thing of water and your head's out of it compared to like your head underneath. Cause it's only three minutes and like you do get used to it. I just think you really feel it a lot more when you're all in there. It's great. <laughs> you should do it. I don't know if I'm going to do this, Melody. I'm just going to be honest with you. Yes, you should, Adam. I'm checking back. I'm <laughs> I do that during the day and I do an infrared sauna session every night. I really recommend that. Do you guys have a sauna? We do not. I wish we did. Oh, I really recommend that. And you can do work in it too. You can read in it, all the biohacking things. All right. So if you ever have any questions, let me know. (laughs) I totally will. Melanie, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. The last question I promise, I always ask the guests, what is something that they're grateful for? My family. Awesome. All right. Well, I will talk to you soon. Thanks, Melanie. See ya. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.